Hello and welcome to the Numlock Podcast. I am Walt Hickey. I write Numlock. Uh, joining us this week, uh, she is the creator of Oversharing, a newsletter all about the sharing economy, the internet of things, the urban design of, of tech startups. Uh, she's Allie Griswold, uh, and so she has just relaunched Oversharing after a hiatus where she uh, actually went to grad school to study urban design, and uh, we're going to be hearing all about that. Um, it is just such a treat to have her back on. You should check out her newsletter. It's a favorite of mine. It's called Oversharing, and it's at oversharing.substack.com. And uh, yeah, hope you enjoy. Allie, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you have just relaunched Oversharing, um, which again is one of my long favorite newsletters. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, what drew you to the space to begin with? Uh, I know that the sharing economy has come to mean a lot of different things, and that evolution has is, is kind of rolled with the time. So I guess what consistently fascinates you about the space? Well, first of all, thank you. Uh, I love having you as an Oversharing fan. It means a yeah. lot. Um, of yeah, I, I sort of fell into the sharing economy because I had various jobs as a business reporter and then through that wound up covering some startups. I like to tell people I'm not really a tech reporter. I'm a business reporter who writes about tech companies from a business yeah. perspective. And then the ones I just thought were most interesting were the sharing economy because this was when it was the early 2010s and Uber was just starting and Airbnb was starting and it was kind of clear they were going to be really big, but they were also completely chaotic <laughs> and that was so fun. <laughs> yeah. And that's how I got into it, but it's just a really interesting space. I mean, I think we've talked about this before, but the sharing economy is this really uh, fascinating intersection of what happens when you have a lot of money that's put into a particular area. And then you also have sort of a fundamental rethinking of labor practices and employment practices. Uh, and then you also have disparities of wealth inequality and income inequality, because more often than not, the consumers are sort of affluent, uh, educated individuals. And then the workers are often sort of more working class, uh, trying to just top off their income for the week. So you have all these factors that go into the sharing economy and collide. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I, lo I love that that note that you had about how like, you're not a tech reporter who covers business, you're a business reporter who covers these tech companies. Because again, like, we've talked about this a little bit before, but it is so interesting that you know, oftentimes the innovation that these companies have is not necessarily a technological one, but rather, you know, some combination of, of cloud services and also just labor, like, and, and interacting with their labor in unconventional ways. Um, and, and I would love, you know, your kind of thoughts on, it's been a little bit since you went on hiatus. So, so what have you kind of seen in the interim on that? Yeah, I, before I went on hiatus, I wrote a piece for oversharing there was something like, what e What even is a tech company anymore? <laughs> uh, because it was that time when Casper was going public. Right. And everyone kept covering it as Casper, this tech company. And I was just like, they sell mattresses online. <laughs> they're, not, they're not a tech company. They're a mattress company that 
sells online <laughs> you know yeah. when when did everything that has a website become a tech company <laughs> <laughs> that's funny but yeah it, it, i mean again like with casper again like it's not even like they're not even like technologically enabled mattresses they're just a delivery right. company yeah yeah so i think at some point we started to conflate tech enabled with tech company because a lot of things, especially now, right? We live in a digital economy. Everyone is on their phones. Everyone has the internet. Everything or most things that do well from a business perspective are tech enabled in that they have a website or an online ordering option or there's some sort of software component. But that doesn't mean the product or the core business is is tech. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting because I imagine that, again, one reason for that appeal is that it's probably a lot more intriguing to a future IPO to be a tech company. But but the facts on the ground, again, like you're you approach it from a business side and you look at the balance sheet and these are not tech companies. Well, and it's better for fundraising. I mean, part of this is this has been well discussed now, but part of the I, I don't want to say innovation, but part of what WeWork did so well was that it marketed itself as a tech company and that enabled it to raise a lot of money from venture capitalists and this sort of flush Silicon Valley ecosystem, which is where the money was. And fundamentally, WeWork is a property business. But it, it, I mean, we don't know, right? This is a counterfactual, but probably WeWork would not have raised as much money if it had gone to traditional financial institutions and said, we are raising money for a shared office startup. <laughs> it <laughs> went to Silicon Valley and it said, oh, we have this like innovative new tech idea. <laughs> Please give us billions of dollars. Yeah. It seems like it's a hustle. And and again, one thing I've enjoyed a lot about your coverage has been kind of just very much blowing through that. Um, you've been, recently you went to graduate school and, and you studied at urban, I might be butchering this, but urban city, like city design. Sustainable and like cities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what, what do you bring in from that towards the new kind of oversharing relaunch? Yeah, it was a great program. Um, I sort of needed some time off from journalism to decompress during the pandemic and had been interested in going back to school for a while and was thinking that a lot of the things I wrote about were fundamentally urban platforms and that they tend to work well in dense cities with a lot of people. Um, and so I thought, you know, I, I know about business because I've covered it, but I don't know a ton about urban planning and that what an interesting thing to study and have this other lens on it. So yeah, it was great. Um, there were a lot of classes on sort of governing cities and a lot of it was sort of urban theory. What What is a city? Um, how do we decide who has a right to it? Who has a voice? Who gets listened to? Very, very sort of sociological framework. But I'm excited to bring that to oversharing because I think oversharing's always been sort of interested in these cultural, social questions that are raised by tech. And it's nice to have more of an academic grounding in ways to approach it. That's good. like, that's really, I, I want to spend a little bit of time here because that's a really fascinating angle. I feel like, you know, I'm kind of reminded of a, one of your bigger stories was about scooters breaking down um, mm -hmm. and how they just weren't built for the wear and tear of an actual city. And, you know, we've all been in, in an Uber before where, you know, it's a Toyota Corolla that's seen some, some wear and tear. And I, you always contrast that with like the cabs in New York, which are like specifically, you know, expensively designed 
but like built to kind of be infrastructure for a city. And it seems like one thing that was always a pervasive theme in some of your coverage was always just that like, you know, though it may look like it on the outside, a lot of these new tools and new assessed replacements for infrastructure are actually kind of cruddy at doing that. They're not made with enough care that that infrastructure demands. So I guess like from your experience on there, what are some ways that, you know, now we see cities and, and startups attempting to like create new infrastructure where, where there might not be that much there there? Yeah, I sort of have two points on this. One is a thing I used to think about a lot, but didn't write about that much was like you say with scooters and Uber, these are for-profit companies offering transit services. And part of the reason they're able to do that is because they rely on public infrastructure, right? Uber and scooters couldn't operate without roads and sidewalks and all these things. But, um, you know, historically, we haven't expected these companies to pay into maintaining and supporting that infrastructure. So I think that's an interesting urban question, right? Should, Should companies that profit off of public infrastructure also have a duty to contribute to maintaining, supporting, and potentially expanding that infrastructure. Um, Like that's something I would like to look at more. Um, The second thought I had when you asked that is I'm doing something for tomorrow about this uh, urban intervention in Los Angeles. It was just a fun story that was on NPR recently about people going around and painting crosswalks where they felt yeah and so so this was something i studied in my program it's called diy urbanism or tactical urbanism and it's defined as unsanctioned interventions into the urban landscape usually by a group of concerned citizens in response to perceived neglect from authorities and traditionally uh, diy urbanism is thought of as sort of fun and creative but also there's there's obviously tension because it might not be legal there could be repercussions and so so i was thinking you know when scooter companies started they didn't get permission <laughs> they yeah. just they just put scooters everywhere i mean in a way that is that was also a diy urbanism move but the difference is it was for profit so right. so why why do we get concerned and even like, why is it that a group of citizens is potentially going to be punished for doing something not for profit that is intended to improve the community versus a company is able to get away with doing the same thing, but explicitly to make money. That's really insightful. That's like, and both of those points remind me of like, the tension that a lot of, and I feel like, you know, you'll definitely remember this better than I will, but a lot of the early tension around like Uber and Lyft were at airports. Like mm-hmm. they, they wanted to be in the cab lines. They wanted to get like good drop off locations and the airports were like, oh, you got to pay for that, buddy. <laughs> like that there's a, that there's a, the, you know, these municipal institutions were designed alongside cabs in mind where they do get to wet their beak by virtue of offering these services to pick up and whatnot. And it was just so interesting to kind of watch like, you know, eventually, in depending on the city, either they got a good deal, a bad deal, or you have to swipe all the way out to a whole different LaGuardia terminal or something like that. Like, it, it's been interesting to watch the evolution of how these, like, you know, 
again, it really goes from being a tech company to like a government liaison company. And and I love watching your newsletter kind of cover that shift. Thank you. Yeah. And it's not to say that the existing models or way the government does things are always right. I mean, a lot of times they're not, or they could be improved on, but I guess the point is that every, every time we do one of these things or a company does, that is a choice and that says something about what we value as a society and what we think is the way a city should run and be function functioning. And so I so to answer your question, I I'm excited to have done the program and be able to apply that lens to these companies because I just think it will lend itself to a, a richer discussion. Yeah. I like that a lot. You, you actually you had a post just last week about how the taxis are now on Uber, which is uh, years ago would have been completely incalculably not in the realm of humanity yeah. possibility. Like, yeah, it's um, it's it, I think it's born out of supply problems. Uh, it's been pretty well reported that well, Uber Uber went through this fundamental transformation during the pandemic, which was that everyone was locked down, people were afraid of taking cabs. And so, and also drivers rightfully were worried about transporting around people who might be sick and give them COVID. So they just saw this massive shift in their business from most of the business revenue being rides to most of it being delivery, which made a lot of sense because everyone was home, everyone needed food and groceries and essentials, and Uber was able to provide that service. But then of course, you know, people got vaccinated, things started to open up, there's COVID fatigue, the world came back online. And suddenly people wanted to take Ubers again, and there just weren't enough drivers. So, you know, classic supply and demand, prices go up, wait times go up, people are unhappy. And Uber has been on a campaign for almost a year now to try to get more drivers on the road. And so, yeah, like you said, they just struck this honestly hilarious deal <laughs> to, to, to bring taxis in New York, to bring taxis onto the app, um, which you know, is argu is arguably good for taxis. We'll have to see how it plays out. But if it gives them more choice, generally more choice is good. Um, but yeah, it's just after years of sort of denigrating the taxi industry, it's funny to see that in this moment of supply constraint and need, <laughs> that is where Uber's turned. Yeah, it's like, these companies are really interesting because they've also, you know, there's some more scrutiny under them now. You just have to turn on any streaming service to watch a lovely uh, you know story about a founder of one of these companies one of these days but it is so interesting about how like you know they took something that was very very simple which is like i'm i need a ride somewhere and i'm gonna pay a taxi 15 dollars to accomplish this task and then you you had a post i want to say about the law in washington state that was just like the jargon here is getting really out of hand and it took something that was very simple of just like i'm going to pay a taxi cab driver driving to a location to i'm going to use a ride sharing service that will offer compensation to a individual to take some pla passenger platform miles through a transportation network company it's just and it seems like you know that it, you know innovation i think has a positive spin but that is like an innovation in, in some regard no yeah it's a fancy way of re redefining the taxi meter um, yeah. <laughs> no, so so Washington State, like you said, recently passed this new law that sets a pay floor for ride hail drivers, um, which is good because there's been a tension for a while in the sharing economy where workers want better wages and better working conditions and the companies 
say they also want that, whether you believe that is up to you to decide. Um, but then they say, we, our hands are tied. We can't provide these benefits because if we were to do that, it would be interpreted by regulators as us being an employer and mm. we can't have an employer employee relationship. So we are sort of legally constrained from improving the situation. And so this bill is one of the ways that they're now doing that. They're sort of creating laws that mandate benefits and higher standards without making them employers. Um, but yeah, so, so there was a section of the bill at the very beginning, which just defined a lot of terms and it is quite jargony, but it's also, I think it's very helpful because it's, it's hard to have an informed conversation about something if you're not able to talk about it in common language. And I mean, we see this in politics all the time, right? Yeah. And so while it's jargony, it's helpful to say, okay, when a when an Uber trip happens, what are the different parts of that, right? What what time should a driver get paid for? Because there's the time the driver's on an app, but they don't actually have a passenger for all of that time. Sometimes they're just waiting for a job to come in. There's the time when they've accepted a job, but the passenger's not yet in the car. And then there's the time when they pick up the passenger. So you have sort of those three distinct segments and which of those should the company have to compensate the driver for? Got it. It definitely seems like, again, it's overcomplicating stuff, but it also seems like that's been a broader shift in the overall economy. Like it's been, you've seen, you know, unionized workforces oftentimes dissolve into contractor based systems where like, rather than having all of your suppliers be either in-house or through a dedicated network, you know, the way to, to get into the middle or upper class in America is, is to become a contractor. And then it, it does seem like they took a lot of that, like, you know, that mentality and, and they just tried to make it into like, but what if we had that, but also you were still in the working class. And yeah. it just felt like, you know, it, it feels like a very, like, they're really trying to do some language shifts that are fascinating to watch in real time. I would say. Yeah. And I also, I just think it sort of highlights disparities in the labor system. I feel like personally, I feel like a lot of worker classification is is a class issue, but I don't mean that in the way class is often thought of. What I mean sure. is, you know, we when you're in a white collar job, you get paid a salary, right? You're expected to show up to work. Maybe your contract says you work nine to five or something like that, but often that's not enforced. Often you can just go to lunch or take a break. No one's sort of stopping the clock when you get a coffee, right? right? And if you're an Uber driver, every minute is sort of materially important to when you're getting paid and when you're not getting paid. And that's just such a different way to relate to your work. Yeah. It, it, it also just seems like it's a step back uh, in terms of, of worker relations in the country. But, um, I, I, you know, backing out from this uh, topic a bit, you know, uh, I'm interested in like, you know, you, you spend a lot of time studying cities, you spend a lot of time looking at these, you know, driver, these, um, these, you know, sharing economy firms. What is a city that's kind of doing well at this? Like, it, like I, you always kind of see like, you know, situations where cities will completely screw up uh, and, and, you know, as a result, their downtowns are littered with abandoned scooters. Uh, but like, I guess, it, is there anybody or any kind of municipality that you had a chance to look at that you think is kind of doing all right or, or at least going in the right direction? Um, I think Paris is often talked about as being among the most ambitious in terms of 
getting rid of cars. Uh, Paris under Anne Hidalgo, the mayor, has very aggressively expanded cycling lanes, uh, put money into sort of bike repairs and helping people get bikes and all these sorts of things. They've been very creative with their initiatives. Um, London has put up a lot of cycling lanes uh, just in the past. I mean, in the in the three years I've been here, there used to not be any cycling lanes on the main road outside my flat, and now there are. <laughs> so <laughs> that has happened while I've been living here. I've seen it go up. And then I wrote my dissertation for the master's program on the New York City Open Streets program, which was really interesting because this was a program where New York sort of fairly early into the pandemic decided they would uh, cordon off some sections of streets and allow them to be open for dining and pedestrianized activity to sort of create more space for social distancing and outdoor activities. And the thing I saw from, I looked at two of the open streets and the thing that became very clear is it was just so scattershot. Yeah. Like one was doing really well because it was totally community run in Jackson Heights, Queens, and people yeah. were extremely engaged. And How it's, is that one? <laughs> yeah, it's 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 enormously successful, but but it's not a testament to New York City. It's a testament right. to the people who've made it happen and are still making it happen. And then I looked at Park Slope Fifth Ave, which is where I used to live, and that one's also successful, but for different reasons. It's being run by the local business improvement district, and it has a much more explicitly commercial focus. So it's been successful in terms of having a vibrant um, sort of commercial life and a lot of dining, but people on Fifth Ave don't feel ownership of it the way mm. that people in Jackson Heights feel that the street is really theirs and sort of a product of community efforts. And then you have others that have completely fallen by the wayside because they don't have the business resources or they don't have the engaged community to make it run. And the city really hasn't been engaged in providing that support. So it was just very interesting to look at this program and see that there were such a wide variety of outcomes um, because of lack of, basically the city said, we've given you a stamp, you can do it. And that was, yeah. it, you know, Interesting. Yeah, I will say like each borough is different. I feel like I live in Queens, and I feel like again the Queens mobility stuff and, and and like kind of new city stuff and new bike lanes and stuff. It feels like it's it's accelerating at a clip way quicker than any of the other boroughs, which has been kind of nice. To see. I think there's a lot of community support for it. But yeah, so that, so London, Paris, New York. Anyone else kind of come to mind? I guess who's doing bad? Who who's not really nailing it? Do you think? Um, I don't have a good answer to that, but I'll definitely look <laughs> into it and get back to you. Yeah, sure. I will look forward on oversharing. So um, I guess just kind of backing out a bit, like where do you kind of see the newsletter going in the next, you know, couple as you get it re-going again? Yeah. So we're, we're finishing up the launch period right now, which is sort of a faster pace of production than it will be. Uh, long term, it's going to be three posts a week. Uh, the idea is that the core oversharing as people know it and have gotten it for a long time, sort of a couple topics, maybe a short essay, links at the bottom, that will remain free to everyone because it is, it's important to me that people be able to access oversharing and like people who've been subscribing for a long time don't feel um, cut out by it going behind a paywall. But also, you know, um, we all have to make a living. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> content can't be free. So, so some of it will be paid. Um, 
there will be more of an urbanism focus. Uh, there will be newsy posts as they happen. Uh, I'm I'm casting a wide net for interesting people to interview, to do Q&As with. If that's you, like, please get in touch. Email me at oversharingstuff at gmail.com. I would love to talk to you. Uh, and I'm also toying around with the idea of having some sort of book club element where we would read books about urbanism or gig companies, or maybe once in a while, just a fun book, because we all need a fun book. Yeah, can't all be the power broker. Um, I did read the power broker. It was great. um, Classic. (laughs) There's two types of people in the pandemic, people who wanted to read the power broker and people who did read the power broker. Actually, well, I'll tell you my secret because we're friends. (laughs) I did. I did complete the entire power broker, Mm. but I rented it from the library as an audio book. It was three parts. Each part was about 24 hours. I listened to it on 1.8 X while I went on (laughs) six mile walks around London when the only thing you could do was go on walks during the pandemic. So it was basically like a very intensive podcast experience. Amazing. I love that. Like I love I love audiobooks because they have the, like here's a mini series of podcasts, but it's gonna stick the landing. <laughs> like exactly. we, we'll know if he's guilty or not. <laughs> but that's really funny. Um yeah, so again it's it's a really outstanding newsletter. I've been a longtime fan. Um and so folks can find that just at oversharing.substack.com and, and where else can where else can folks find your work? Uh I am on Twitter, but not a lot at Allison Griswold. And yeah, that mostly at oversharing.substack.com. Excellent. All right. Well, hey, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much to Allie for coming on. She can be found at Oversharing. Thank you for listening to the Numlock Podcast. If you enjoy it, please leave a review. Um, thanks for reading Numlock. I appreciate that. I'm Walt Hickey. Thanks to JT Fails for the use of our theme song. Thank you for listening. Bye.